Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. What do we mean when we talk about Western civilization? The term itself is under assault from progressives, as if the very notion is somehow passé and is not inclusive enough in a globalized world. It It has been cast out of the curriculum in many a university. Out with this patriarchal, inherently oppressive, noxious mix and antiquated framework, cry the new gatekeepers of ideas, be gone any traces of Christianity or Jewish thought and precepts. But the fact is, our daily lives in the U.S. and throughout much of the world are governed by core values and concepts that grow out of two inextricably linked aspects of the human condition, faith and reason. You don't have to be a religious person to benefit from gaining an understanding of how the pairing of reason and faith is one of the hallmarks of Western civilization and is unique to it. In his powerful 2019 work of intellectual history, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization, Samuel Gregg demonstrates that key features of what we call the West, from the market economy to scientific advancement and the quest for human freedom and justice, are rooted in the relationship between faith and reason. He shows, for example, that the Enlightenment has been misleadingly portrayed as almost wholly anti-religious in nature, whereas many of its leading figures were, in fact, deeply devout and welcomed the development of new fields of study and were indeed often pioneers in them. Greg examines key historical events, such as a Regenberg lecture delivered in 2006 by Pope Benedict XVI, and which led to mass demonstrations and riots in parts of the Muslim world, and the origins of the idea of a reasoning, reasonable God in ancient Judaism and early Christianity in order to argue that Western civilization is worth preserving in an era of jihadism and other mortal threats to values we all cherish, such as religious freedom, freedom of speech, and human rights and dignity. In his book, Greg compellingly argues that a renewed commitment to the foundational linkage of faith and reason is not only possible, but imperative for everyone on the planet who does not wish to live under tyranny. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Samuel Gregg about his 2019 book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Before we learn a little about you, Sam, I'd like to tackle the matter of the title of your book, which may be a roadblock for readers of a progressive bent, whom I maintain would benefit enormously by reading your work. The word faith is one of the words those on the left, as a noted conservative legal and political philosopher Robert P. George has amusingly put it, find icky, as in yucky and they find it even stranger to see it paired with the word reason. Could you give us a quick rundown on how do you use the words faith and reason in your book, and why those who balk at the word faith should read your book? Well, as uh, you're saying, the concepts of faith and reason have long been seen as somehow fundamentally opposed to one another. The world of reason, the world of science, the world of empirical inquiry, the world of philosophy even, are all very, very different from the world of faith. And faith is seen in, in many of these circles as a question of sentiment, superstition, mythology, wishful thinking, etc. And one of the things I try to point out in the book is that if you look at the history of the West, not just Christian history, Jewish history, but if you go all the way back to the earliest origins of what I call Western civilization, it's very clear 
that these two things are seen as working hand in hand with each other. So by faith, faith is not irrationality. Faith is the type of judgment you make on the basis of evidence that you have presented to you. Now, we do this all the time. We do it, for example, with uh, a, a, a reflection upon whether the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning. We do this when it comes to thinking about things that our reason can perceive but quite, can't quite get our minds around. And in the book, what I do is say that when you think about it, many of these things come together in the concept of reasoned inquiry into truth. And reason is obviously all about truth. That's its ultimate objective. But that is also the objective of faith. Faith is fundamentally concerned with religious truth. Faith is fundamentally concerned with the ultimate truth about the origins of the universe, where it's come from and where it's going. So in that sense, someone who's an atheist has a type of faith at work insofar as they have arrived at certain conclusions about the ultimate origins and purpose of the universe that add up to a religious explanation. Well, that's a very helpful introduction, especially the fact that atheists have faith, which is they might not want to hear, but that's an that's a good point to for them to to contemplate. Well, they, they now, do have faith insofar as they have arrived at some type of religious conclusions about the world. You can't. No one can have um, completely a religious views of the world. Everyone has to make some sort of decision about whether or not there is a God. And if there is a God, who is that God or gods? And then they have to live their lives accordingly. So in that sense, the atheist is as much concerned with religious truth as the devout believer. Well, thank you for that. I think that's very helpful to the atheists in the audience, of whom there are probably many, many, many. Um, now, thank you for that. I'd like to ask you a little about yourself. I know, for example, that you were a student of John Finnis at Oxford, and some listeners may not know who he is, and I would like to spell out his name so that they do learn about him. It is John, as in John the Baptist, which given his influence in philosophy of law is not an inapt comparison. Finnis, F as in fidelity and faith, I, double N, N as in New Testament, S as in Sam, Finnis, F-I-N-N-I-S. There is a key section of your book that draws on some of his ideas that I hope we'll get to later in the interview. But for now, I would be very interested to hear what he's like as a person and as a mentor. You were both Australian born and thus were new to the world of Oxford and British Academia. Finnis seems to have a knack for town spotting and helping those at Oxford who, for, who were like him, were far from home. And his track record of shaping the minds, and I gather moral characters, of his students is phenomenal. Not only were you one of his students, but so were Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch and the aforementioned Robert P. George, the latter of whom is now shaping a cohort of brilliant students of his own. Given what gifted writers you, George and Gorsuch, the latter is recorded quite the stylist in his legal opinions, are, could you talk a bit about how Finnis influenced you in that respect and in others? Well, as you say, uh, John Finnis is Australian-born, like myself, and he's been at Oxford uh, in the law faculty basically since the early 1960s. He went there as a Rhodes Scholar uh, in the 1960s, and he pretty much has stayed there ever since, although he has taught at different institutions in the United States 
and even Africa and Australia along the way. And he also maintains, in addition to his emeritus position at Oxford, he also has a position in the law faculty at Notre Dame. So his academic focus is very much jurisprudence, in other words, legal theory. But he also writes about constitutional law as well as political theory. Now, one of the things about him is that uh, as a younger man, so when he was, before he went to university, he had pretty much arrived at, I, I guess you would describe, uh, as the views of someone who was a religious agnostic, if not, if not atheist. Uh, but then, uh, during his uh, undergraduate studies, he became convinced of the reasonability, and that's very important, the reasonability of Christianity. Mm. That it did provide the most reasonable account of the nature and origins of the universe, the purposes and uh, nature of human existence, and the ultimate destiny of human beings. So... Uh, to that extent, it's very important to recognize that his view of religion is very much influenced by his conviction that reason can indeed know these things. He's probably most famous today for being, I would say, the world's most famous natural law theorist. And by natural law, I mean the tradition of thinking that really begins with people like Aristotle, but is also associated with people like Maimonides, the Jewish philosopher, Aquinas, the Thomist thinker, as well as any number of uh, Protestant thinkers and even some secular thinkers. And natural law is really the, is central to the tradition of Western thinking about moral, political, legal, and economic subjects. He's most famous in terms of things he's written for a book that was published in 1980 called Natural Law and Natural Life. This book was important because at the time, natural law theory had gone into a type of eclipse throughout much of the West. Skepticism was on the rise. Uh, many people who had hitherto adhered to more or less natural law accounts of reality had backed away from it. And frankly, the state of natural law philosophy at the time was not in very good shape. But he came along and basically provides an account of natural law that's accessible, that uh, doesn't actually talk about the God question until the last chapter, and even argues that you can believe in natural law without actually making some sort of act of faith or believing in some type of revelation. Though he does say that natural law does lead you to the conclusion that there is, there must be some type of supreme being who's not simply a clockmaker who winds up the world and sets it in motion, but someone who begins the world, who's the creator of the world, and then is involved in it. Now, in, in his life as a scholar, he's written about all sorts of things raising, ranging from relatively obscure but important questions of legal theory to some of these broader philosophical questions. But he's also thought very seriously about the relationship between reason and faith. He's also thought very seriously about how those two things play out in the context of the development and what some would say the uh, corrosion of Western culture. I wonder, could you repeat the, the the title of that book again, just to make sure that our, our listeners got it? Sure. It's called Natural Law and Natural Rights. It was published in 1980 by Clarendon Press, which is an Oxford University publishing house. And I think it's fair to say that it's one of the most important books written in natural law theory 
certainly in the 20th century, some would say over the past 500 years. Or just a law in general, I suppose. Well, absolutely, because he is very much recognized as a giant of, of legal philosophy, of jurisprudence. And of course, there's plenty of people who dispute the very idea of natural law. But no one would dispute that he's perhaps the world's foremost articulator and defender of natural law in our time. And he's a nice man, I understand. Absolutely. I was a great, he supervised my doctorate. He was very tough, he was very fair. Uh, but he always treated students, in my experience, as serious people. He didn't mollycoddle them, uh, but he also had a view that he was there to help them to attain uh, knowledge of truth. So to that extent, I think he was, has been a great supervisor to many people. As you mentioned, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court Justice, was a doctoral student of his. And so was Professor Robert P. George, who is a professor of Princeton professor, and many other scholars and judges and lawyers and people in working in all sorts of fields that you might not recognize. Yes, Robert P. George has recently been interviewed on the New Book Network and he on the New Books Network, and he was very eloquent on the subject of the connection of faith and reason. And that in that interview, I recommend it to a lot of listeners. Speaking of of your own, we were speaking about Genesis work as a legal philosopher, how would you characterize yourself vis-a-vis discipline? Are you you an intellectual historian, a legal philosopher? (laughs) You say of your book, um, uh, for instance, if this book must be classified, let it be called a history of ideas. Well, I think that that book is certainly about the history of ideas, and it's certainly about the relationship between reason and faith, which I think is fundamental to understanding both the rise of Western civilization, but also some of the problems that the West faces now. When I did my doctorate, the area that I worked on was very much natural law theory and its relationship to, of all things, economics. And that's why you find in uh, reason, one of the reasons you find in reason, faith, and the struggle for Western civilization, you find some reflections in there. In fact, one chapter spends a great deal of time talking about the intellectual revolution that was launched by people like Adam Smith in the 18th century. So these are my areas. I'm very interested in intellectual history. I'm obviously interested in natural law theory. I'm interested in political economy, and I've written a fair amount about uh, the American founding as well. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned your work in political economy because I hope to get to that later in the interview. I've got my question already. For that. <laughs> um, uh, as to this particular book, getting back to um, the faith and reason rather than political economy for a moment, what, what vacuum are you trying to fill with it? You say in your preface, one argument of this book is that only can reason and faith correct each other's excesses, but they can also enhance each other's comprehension of the truth, continually renewing Western civilization. For liberal listeners, what do you mean by truth here? Is this different from facts? Truth is the mind's apprehension of reality. Truth is, reason is the capacity of the human mind to recognize not just facts, but also to recognize principles, recognize ideas as either true or false, and to engage in critique of ideas and uh, critique of philosophical systems, religion, etc. And when you think about it, let me put it this way. 
If you're not engaged in the search for truth, if the mind, the human mind, is not orientated to knowing the truth, then the question I always ask is, why do we spend so much time arguing about these things? So the fact that there is considerable disagreement, religious disagreement, philosophical disagreement, disagreement, all sorts of disagreement about ideas, is not an argument about whether there is truth or not. The very purpose of the intellect is to know and understand truth. It has no other purpose uh, in that that deeper sense beyond that. Yes, our intellect, our reason enables us to deal with everyday things that keep us alive, that give us pleasure, that that increase um, uh, the the ways in which we interact with others in, in certain ways rather than other ways. But ultimately, reason is the the ability of the human mind to know empirical truth, but also non-empirical truth. Let me put it this way. We don't just pursue the discipline of medicine because um, we think it's, uh, it's good to heal people. That's one reason we do it. But we also do it because we also want to know the truth about things like how the human body works. We want to know the truth about where diseases come from. We want to know the truth about how we make humanity uh, less susceptible to disease, to sickness. And why do we care about all those things? Because we think it's important to know what's true and to understand the difference between what's true and what's false. Because false understandings of reality, whether it's empirical reality or non-empirical realities, have major consequences for not just the way we live our lives, but for society and culture more generally. Well, given that we've just been talking about the meaning of the words as you use them in the book, I'd like to ask you about a phrase that you use in the book that's kind of uh, a little uh, not loaded, but intriguing. Um, You use a term that people who are religious and those who are not, who disdain religious faith may bristle at, and that's the word pathologies, as in pathologies of reason and faith. I'd like to ask, is that a term of art or your own personal phraseology, and what what do you mean by it? It's a pretty... pretty, uh, It's just a... It's it's sort of a medical medical term to discuss truth and and reason. I just wonder what, what you're getting at there. Well, I am not the originator of the term pathologies of faith, pathologies of reason. Mm. That's an expression that was used extensively by Joseph Ratzinger, later to become Pope Benedict XVI. Mm. He used this phrase extensively in his writings before he became Pope and when he was Pope. What does Mm. he mean by this? What he basically says is that the relationship between reason and faith is fundamental to understanding the course of Western history, course of Western culture, what makes Western culture great, but also some of the errors that have emerged in Western culture. He says many of these errors, things like um, jihadism, things like Marxism, things like Nietzscheanism, things like the type of liberalism that's associated with John Stuart Mill, things like scientism, which is a mistake of reducing reason to the natural sciences, basically argues that all of these in different ways are pathologies. They're sicknesses of reason 
sicknesses of faith and sometimes sicknesses of faith and reason. So an example of a pathology of faith would be something like jihadism. What's jihadism? Jihadism is this a particular uh, Muslim conception of the nature of God and the responsibility of the believer in light of having come to a particular conclusion about the nature of God. So the God of the jihadist is not a God of reason and a God of faith. The God of the jihadist is pure will. And this is not a God of reason. This is not a God who acts with love. This is a God who just does whatever the heck he wants. And there's no arguing with this God. There's no reasoning of this God, even to raise questions about the reasonability of God as seen as wrong and false. And what it means is that when this God commands you to do terrible things like fly planes into buildings or blow yourself up or whatever it happens to be, jihadists can't really articulate a critique of, of that command within the context of their religious belief system because it, it, it's, it's a religious belief system that excludes any place for reason. So that's an example of a pathology of faith. A pathology of reason would be something like, as I mentioned before, scientism. Scientism is the notion that the only way in which you can understand the world and the only valid form of reason is the empirical sciences. So you measure, you engage in experimentation as you try to discern why X is produced by Y or what combination of factors allow certain things to happen. But you don't ask fundamental questions. You don't ask, well, what's at the origin of the nature of the universe? You don't ask questions about good or evil. In fact, questions of good or evil get re reduced to questions of measurement, of utility, of whether something can be done or whether can, something can not be done. So in that schema, reason has not only been reduced to a particular dimension of reason, which is the empirical side, but the notion of faith, that there are things that we recognize and see, even if we can't fully understand it using our reason alone, that has been pushed out the door. So those are examples of pathologies of faith and pathologies of reason. And when you look at these, you start to see that, okay, now if I want to understand Marxism or if I want to understand uh, jihadism, I have to understand that these are pathologies of faith and reason, and if we're going to deal with these problems, we need to get back to trying to restore some sort of coherent relationship between the world of faith and the world of reason. Well, speaking of speaking of Cardinal Ratzinger, or I'm not sure, uh, I, I, I'm not sure when he when he when he began to use that terminology, but you, chapter one of your book is called "The Speech That Shook the World." And I didn't want to give it away, but that's who was giving the speech. So could you tell us when that what what the what the speech was, what Ratzinger's position was when he gave it, and what the repercussions of it and how it was misconstrued to deadly effect throughout much of the Muslim world? Well, when in September 2006, um, about a year and a half after he had been elected Pope, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, uh, went to Germany for a pastoral visit, and he gave a speech at a university, the Re University of Regensburg, which is in Bavaria, which is where Ratzinger is from. 
He gave a speech. It was called Faith, Faith, Reason, and the University. It's available online. It's very easy to find. And this speech of about 3,800 words, I would argue, is thus far maybe the most significant speech given in the 21st century. Wow, that's really saying something. Well, I think if you look at the speech and you realize what it's about, uh, you start to see its importance in that that light. Mm. What does he say? He basically talks about the importance of the university, that the purpose of the university is about the search for truth. And then he gets into a discussion and analysis of the relationship between faith and reason. And in the course of that analysis, he quoted a Byzantine emperor, who this Byzantine emperor's correspondence with an unnamed Muslim scholar. And the Byzantine emperor asks the question, why is it that uh, forms of Islam seem almost addicted to violence? Why is it that they behave in this way? And the Byzantine emperor suggests it has something to do with certain Muslim understandings of the nature of God, that God is not reasonable, that God is purely will, divine will, or to use the Latin term, pure voluntas, pure will. Could you, just making, Sam, could you tell us what voluntarism is? Voluntas is the idea, is the, is, the, is the Latin word which means just will. Voluntas just means will. And so the argument that was being made here was that if your conception of God is voluntas, pure will, will not guided by reason, will not directed or shaped by a concern for good and evil, that's your conception of God, then we shouldn't be surprised that if that God orders you to do barbaric things, then you have no recourse against that. You just have to do it. That's because that's obeying the will of God. So his, his point was, if God is unreasonable, if God is understood to be unreasonable, then we shouldn't be surprised that that has some very negative consequences. But here's the thing. The Muslim world got, parts of the Muslim world, I should say, got very upset by that speech. And as I say in the book, it's not clear to me that they actually read the speech, some of the people who were protesting against it, because what they would have discovered is that the text itself, the Regensburg speech given by Benedict, is not so much about Islam. It's much more about us. It's about us, we who live in the West. One of the things he was trying to say there was that in the West, the unique integration of reason and faith that began with the Jewish people, which works its way through Christianity and it achieves a type of apothesis in the work of people like Thomas Aquinas in the medieval period. He says that has broken, that, has, that integration has, to a certain extent, disintegrated. He says this is why we find these pathologies of faith, these pathologies of reason starting to emerge in Western societies from as early as the 14th century onwards. So that was the real message of Regensburg. Unfortunately, that got lost because so many people were focusing upon the reaction of parts of the Muslim world to this speech. That's really the essence of the talk. And that's why I think in the long term it will be seen as one of the most important addresses of the 21st century. Hmm. Well, that, that's a kind of a nice segue into the the idea of 
uh, you were talking about the the god of a willful god or a god that is not that is not operating on a basis of reason, and that that would lead to my question about the keyword concept in your book, or one of them is logos. And could yes. you discuss logos? Because that's that's some that's one one question I had is, can you distinguish is Jesus logos or is his father God logos? I wasn't quite clear on that. Well, the the short answer is that Christians believe that Christ is the Logos and God the Father is a Logos and the Holy Spirit is the Logos because they are all three in one. So they all have the character the character of Logos. Logos is a Greek word. What it means is divine reason. That's all it means. It means divine reason. And this is very important because in the pagan world, so in the pre-Christian world, in the world outside the land of Israel, the land of the Jewish people, gods were not seen as reasonable. The gods and goddesses of the world that inhabited the pagan mindset were not reasonable beings at all. They were willful. They did whatever they wanted. They manipulated people's lives. Uh, Life was dominated by a type of churn and circularity because there's really no beginning point in time in which the Logos is present and sets everything in motion. Now, people like Plato and Aristotle, They started using the word logos as a way of trying to describe what they believed was a divine creator, something or someone that lies at the beginning of time, at the beginning of history. Now, they had to be very careful in the way they phrased all that because in the the ancient Greek world, if you started questioning the Greek mythology, Roman mythology, you're, bound, you're basically viewed as a type of atheist. Being an atheist, you're seen as fundamentally unreliable, someone who's bound to be traitorous, someone who doesn't care about the polis or how the Greeks and Romans described the city. So the Jewish people, they are really the first to articulate this idea that God is one and that this God is reasonable, that this God is not an unreasonable being, and that the same God, they also say, gives us freedom. The same God who's at the beginning of time, who creates everything in motion, who loves humanity, also gives us reason, and he also gives us the freedom to use use and misuse our reason in different ways. So the Jewish people arrived at this conclusion 500 years, 500 years, five centuries before Greek philosophers really began even inching towards this particular conception of the nature of God and the universe. You find this conception of God first articulated in the Hebrew prophets. So when you come to the Christian era, it's very clear that Christianity takes this Jewish conception of God as logos and then says that this this God, this God who we find in the Hebrew Scriptures, he is the Logos. He is Christ. Christ is the Logos. Christ is divine reason. And this is very explicitly stated 
at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, which begins by saying, as, as most people know, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word, used for Word, the Word, in Greek to describe the Word, is Logos. This is deliberately used by the author of the Gospel of John because he is writing for a predominantly Greek and Roman audience as well as Jewish audiences who had imbued and had become rather assimilated to Hellenic philosophy without giving up on their belief in, in, um, in Yahweh, the God of Israel. So when the Gospel of John uses this term logos, in the beginning was the logos, it's a very clear point that's being made about the nature of the God first revealed to the Hebrew people, first revealed to the Jews. Salvation, as they say, as Paul tells us, is from the Jews. And this God is now fully manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, which means that Christianity is proposing a God to the world who is quite different, utterly different from the likes of Zeus, the likes of Mercury, the likes of Venus. This God is a God of love. He is caritas, the Latin word for love, but he is also logos. He is divine reason. He stands at the beginning of time. This is why he is the truth, because he is the logos. And we human beings who have been made in the image of God and who Christians believe have been redeemed by that same God in the person of Jesus Christ, we share in that reasonability. Our reason is not as powerful or as all-encompassing as that of the Logos, God himself, but we share. We share that reasonability because we are made in the image of that God. Well, given that, thank you, that was very helpful elucidation of some very important concepts. Um, in your speaking of, because you were discussing the pagans and the Jews both, I'd like to refer to Tertullian's famous question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And could you please explain what that, who he was and why he was asking that question? Well, Tertullian was a early Christian scholar. He was from Carthage. Carthage, of course, was the um, city that Rome had the epic struggle with. Uh, in the time of the Roman Republic. It was really almost like the, the clash between Athens and Sparta. It was like the clash between uh, America and the Soviet Union. And Tertullian was from Carthage. And he's writing around about somewhere between uh, 155 and 240 AD. And he's really the, um, a Christian apologist. He's an apologist for Christianity. Apologia, he's giving reasons for why he believes, why he's a Christian. He wrote extensively against not just paganism, but also different heresies, Christian heresies that were floating around at the time. And he's many, regarded by many people as really the father of Western Christianity, Latin Christianity. Some people call him the founder of Western theology. And he's, he's the first to start introducing all sorts of very important terms that help to clarify the meaning and content of Christian doctrine. So he uses, for example, the phrase 
Trinity or Trinitas. He's really the first person in Latin to try and use this, this word to try and explain the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he's an immensely important scholar. There's some evidence that he was um, a legal scholar by background. He certainly shows a deep knowledge of Roman law. But he's also one of these people, a bit like St. Paul, who lives very much in, first of all, the Christian world, or let's call it the Greek world and the Roman world, but he's also deeply knowledgeable of the Jewish world and the Hebrew world. And the question that, of course, is that you just mentioned, what has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? This was a way of people saying, well, what has the world of philosophy Athens being the world of philosophy. This is where Aristotle's, um, the, the, the Aristotle and Plato and others and who, where they had come from, where they had worked, was the home of the Academy of Socrates. So people are asking, what has that world got to do with the world of Jerusalem? What has this got to do with the Hebrew Bible? What has this got to do with the revelation given to the Jews, and which Christ then is seen as clarifying and explicating and universalizing. So that's where that question comes from. What has Athens got to do with Jerusalem? The answer I give in the book is everything. Absolutely. Athens and Jerusalem had everything to do with each other because philosophy and faith while they are different ways of thinking, they draw on different sources, they often employ different um, methodologies, but they work in tandem. They are not somehow different worlds from each other. They have a great deal to do with each other. Faith, what religion points to ultimate realities that philosophy can have some understanding of but can't quite get its mind around the whole thing, at the same time, philosophy helps religion to clarify what it believes and to set out what it believes and why it believes certain things and how all these different beliefs, or what you might call dogmas, revealed truths, and doctrines, ways of stating revealed truths, how these all relate to each other. So Athens and Jerusalem, in many respects, I would argue, are that's a way of talking about the foundations of Western civilization. And when one weakens or becomes marginalized, Western civilization suffers. I'm glad you I'm mentioned, glad you mentioned the, I'm glad you mentioned the word marginalized because um, you when a, a, a lar- moving leaping forward several centuries, uh, you talk about the Enlightenment and and the connections around the subject of the branches of knowledge and possible conflicts and possible areas of agreement with them. You mentioned that the Enlightenment has been accurately portrayed, and feel free to explain why you think that's why this has been the case as a movement away from religion, religious institutions, and toward a supposedly more rational way of thinking. And you maintain. As you put it, we need not settle for a civilization shaped by an enlightenment that marginalizes Jewish and Christian faith. Also, you write that there are several enlightenments, and you discuss some of those in the book. Could you elaborate on the the supposed, the supposed tension, which you say is really not a tension between the enlightenment and religious belief and faith? Well, of course, as I say in the book, the enlightenment 
or enlightenment, which is a more accurate term, is often seen as counter-Christian, counter-religion. It's seen as often portrayed as being against faith, against especially against Christian faith. And it's seen in many respects as the overcoming of superstition. It's seen as an epoch in history in which we move away from the bonds of superstition and mysticism and we move into, as the word suggests, a more enlightened world. Now, this is important because it's, this, this is frankly a myth. This is the way that many people understand the various enlightenments, and I use that plural term deliberately because there was more than one enlightenment. So, for example, the figure who is most associated, who most symbolizes in many people's minds the whole enlightenment project is, of course, Sir Isaac Newton. His Principia Mathematica is seen as a revolution in the sciences that enable us, enabling us to understand things like gravity, things enabling us to understand uh, physics, all sorts of things, all, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, all these things uh, very much flow in some way from Newton and his very important book. So he's, he's look at some of the artwork from the 18th century, you see Newton portrayed with light and lightning around him. It's all very clever use of symbolism. What most people don't know is that Isaac Newton was also a devout Christian. He used the notion, he used, for example, the language of logos to try and underscore the point that the creator was not, uh, was not some sort of a deistic being who just sets the world in motion and just lets it go ahead. He very explicitly says that this creator is involved in the world. He doesn't just start the world, but he's actively involved in the world. He's the, he's the being that holds everything together. So Newton is a Christian. He's very explicit about his Christianity. He was very critical of atheism. He thought atheism was philosophically nonsensical. When you go through the 18th century and you look at different Enlightenment thinkers, what you realize very quickly is that while you have people like uh, Derrida, who was a French atheist philosopher of the 18th century, or you have people like Voltaire, who was not an atheist, but very much a type of deist and who, who described Christianity as the worst religion of all. When you look beyond some of those particular figures, what you quickly discover is that most Enlightenment thinkers are not anti-religious. Most Enlightenment thinkers are Christians or believing Christians or believing Jews. They're not people who reject revelation. Now, they do think that reason can arrive at all sorts of conclusions about the world without the aid of immediate aid of revelation, but so did lots of medieval philosophers and theologians as well. Another thing about another thing about um, the, the Enlightenment is that many Christians welcomed the various Enlightenments. They were interested in the new scientific information that was being discovered. They were interested in using the empirical method to understand the world. But they didn't see these things as somehow being 
at odds or somehow contradicting the truths contained in Revelation. Uh, you find this, for example, among lots of Catholic thinkers uh, up until around about the beginning of the French Revolution. But perhaps the most explicit reflection of this positive view taken by the, of the Enlightenment by religious figures is the Scottish Enlightenment, which of course was extremely influential in the formation of the, the young United States. And it's associated, obviously, with people like Adam Smith, who wrote that very important book, The Wealth of Nations, maybe the most important book of the 18th century, and who was a deist. It's also associated with David Hume, who's a self-described infidel. But most of the figures, overwhelmingly, the figures associated and involved in the Scottish Enlightenment were ministers of the Church of Scotland. So these are not people who are hostile to faith. These are people who are interested in revelation, making that revelation better known and better understood, and relating that revelation to the new knowledge being un un uncovered by enlightenment techniques of reasoning and the empirical method of exploring the natural world and the world of society. So this is, this is very important because what it means is that those people who see themselves today as heirs of the various enlightenments, who see the enlightenment as this sort of deeply anti-religious phenomena and that religion is bad and needs to be expunged from the face of the earth, well, they're not actually being particularly faithful to the true nature of most 18th century Enlightenment thought. But it also flips the other way. It also means that those religious believers who regard the various Enlightenments as this one big exercise in a return to neo-paganism and a type of uh, the elevation of things like the sciences, the natural sciences, to almost godlike status, they're also wrong in their interpretation of these things. Now, it's important to remember that different Enlightenment figures had, and different Enlightenment movements has, had, did not all have the same view of religion. So the late French Enlightenment, the late French Enlightenment, which is leading up to the French Revolution, it's pretty clear that that had acquired a certain degree of uh, anti-Christian culture about it. But that's not the same is what you find happening in the Enlightenment in Scotland. And it's even less the case when you look at the American Enlightenment, in which, again, the American Enlightenment, who are the figures that are most heavily involved in this? Turns out to be religious ministers. Well, while speaking of um, America and when we're, when the, you're, you're speaking of the relationship of uh, science and rationality, I'd like... Uh, I'd like to talk to you about your concept of what you refer to as sort of sen sentimentality or sentimental Christianity. Um, mm -hmm. You're critical of some Christians for not adhering as rigorously as you would like, I believe, to reason. And you write, a disdain for reason may lead some Christians to reduce the central figure of Christianity, Jesus Nazareth, to the equivalent of a celestial teddy bear. And ouch, that would kind of hurt my feelings if I were, if I were a certain kind of Christian. But many Christians yeah. find comfort in the idea of a simple, loving Jesus, as in the hymn lyrics say, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And you write, a face collapse into sentimentalism. Is there something wrong with a view of Jesus as a source of comfort rather than a taskmaster who insists upon reason? Or does Jesus insist upon reason? 
And you, can, and you can, can you give an example of what you mean by celestial teddy bear? Do you mean in music or the visual arts or, or <laughs> lyrics? Or? What I mean by, uh, well, there's a number of good questions you asked there, so let me go through them one by one. The first is your question about Jesus as a celestial teddy bear. What I mean is the understanding, not just of Jesus, but any God, as a God who never challenges us, a God mm-hmm. who never asks us questions about why we're doing what we're doing, a God who never sets out the truth about moral good and moral evil, a God who does nothing but affirm us, no matter how ridiculous or stupid or insensitive we might be, a God who who may embody love but whose love is not guided by reason. So this is very important because Christianity holds together this commitment to truth and the notion that you can know the truth through reason and through revelation with the concept that God is also love. Now, what happens with what I what I call sentimental humanitarianism or sentimental religion is that a concern for truth and a concern for reason is thrown out the door. And all you're left with is this teddy bear-like God who just you just hug when you need him, but he never does anything for you. He never, he never helps you. He never, he never teaches you. He never asks you to go beyond whatever's going on in your particular life. He never challenges you to transform yourself. He's just like an irresponsible, uh, uh, irresponsible parent who doesn't actually, who in, who, who in the process of loving you actually ends up hurting you. On the other hand, if the love part of the Christian God is thrown out the door, then it's very easy for Christianity to collapse into a type of legalism and a type of moralism. So Christianity has always held these two things together very, very tightly. Love, love and truth. Um, Feeling and the, the concern for neighbor, but also the importance of reason in telling us how we help our neighbor and why we should be concerned about our neighbor. So sentimental religion throws most of that out the door, throws the reason side out the door. It also means that things like our knowledge of revelation gets reduced to basically mythology because we no longer understand the scriptures as being true in the sense not just of the the scriptures are just reduced to comforting stories rather than historical facts. And you see this language of sentimentalism. It's rife within Jewish congregations and Christian congregations throughout the West today. Whenever you hear a rabbi or a minister or a priest start saying things like, I feel that, or I just feel that. That is not the language of Christ. Christ's language is a language of mercy and love, but it's also a language that insists upon truth and that we can know it and that there are good ways and right ways and just ways of living our lives, and there are wrong ways and unjust ways of living our lives. And Christianity has always had to deal with this inattention. But it's solved if you understand that God is caritas, God is love, but God is also logos. 
Holding those two things together is extremely important for Christianity. And at this point in our history, particularly in large swathes of Jewish and Christian opinion in, uh, in the West today, sentimentalism is the rule. And that's a problem because it doesn't offer anything. It's, not, it's a problem because it's firstly false. It's not an accurate understanding of the God of the Bible, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, and the God of the Christian Scriptures. But it also means that we end up having a false understanding of God because if God is, in fact, just love, then the notion that he is logos and the importance of that for understanding how all of reality fits together disappears. And it means that Christianity and Judaism get reduced to sentiment. Well, thank you very much for making clear that it lo- that discussing love and faith and reason are not not mutually exclusive. That's important. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Samuel Gregg, author of Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. Sam, you used the word, I believe, it was cate- catechist, catechistic, or catechetical. Yes, I think so. Catechesis. Yes. Could you explain what that is? I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Well, it comes from Catechis, the catechesis, or well, if you mean catechesis, um, yes. that's what you mean. Um, it's based. It, it's grounded on the word cathedra, which is chair, and from the chair, the professor teaches. Right. So this is where why when people talk about the chair and the teaching chair, this is what they're referring to. So catechesis means instruction, means instruction in learning, instruction in truth. And catechesis is what happens in the context of uh, Christianity and Judaism because it's not immediately self-evident to everyone when they become a, a believing Jew or a believing Christian. They're not immediately knowledgeable of everything that the Jewish faith or the Christian faith contains. They have to be instructed. They have to be taught these things. And what's important about this is that that implies the use of reason. That implies the use of our minds to explicate who God is, how we know who God is, and how God interacts in human history and what this God wants us to do. So catechesis in that that sense underscores that certainly Judaism and Christianity take reason very seriously because you can't be instructed in the truth claims of these religions unless you use your reason, whether you're a student or whether you're the person who is doing the catechesis. That's the important thing, I think, to remember here when we talk about catechesis. Well, that's very helpful because you discuss aspects of ancient Judaism, for example, that as they developed this whole framework, this whole body of knowledge, that you discuss that the first thing they did was they rejected idolatry and pagan mythology, and they affirmed man's rationality. And the second, you emphasize their understanding of the created universe, and I wish you'd if you could discuss what you mean by the created universe, they heavily emphasized freedom. So they rejected idolatry and mythology, but they and they moved on from that as kind of empty and 
capricious of, the, of those gods to human freedom and agency of the human mind. Mm-hmm. Could you discuss all that? Well, as I said before, in the pagan world, gods were not reasonable. Gods and goddesses did whatever they wanted. They messed around with human lives. They did all sorts of terrible things to each other. In the whole pagan world, the religious horizon was one of essentially, in a way, meaninglessness. There was no purpose, and things were not seen as having particular direction. In fact, the understanding of history, for example, in the pagan world is very circular. Everything's going round and round and round and round. There's no beginning point in a definitive sense. There's no real end point, at least in, in, a, in a specific, spelt-out way. The God of the Hebrew prophets, and if you read the Hebrew scriptures, this is very clear. He is one. He acts with purpose. He just doesn't do whatever he wants. There's design, this purpose that's built into the world that this God has created. This God freely chooses to bring the world and humanity into existence, and he freely chooses to create a being made in his image who also possesses these characteristics of reason and freedom. What you find in the Hebrew prophets is a direct confrontation between this view of God and this view of creation, a, cre- a creation created world created by the creator which has reasonability and logic built into it, with the pagan world in which freedom is not seen as particularly significant or important, in which there are a small group of people called the philosophers who try and engage in reason. Most people don't engage in these sorts of things. Gods are seen as beings that have to be placated because if you don't placate them, they might do terrible things to you. Whereas the God of the Hebrew Scriptures acts with purpose, his creation is not meaningless, and there is direction in human action and human time, and the capacity for free choice that this God gives to people is not conducted in a vacuum because, it's, as it says in the book, book, book of Deuteronomy, I set before you life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life then that you may live. In other words, free choice is conducted in light of knowledge of good and evil, knowledge that we find expressed in Revelation, but knowledge that we also find under the volition of our own reason. So if you look, for example, at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, what's interesting about that is that when you look at each of them, they're not specifically, they're not something that are confined to Judaism. They're insights into moral order and the nature of the universe that people all things being equal, can arrive at under their own volition. And we know this. There's no society that says stealing is good. There's no society that says that killing is good. Now, there's definite, there's arguments about what constitutes an act of killing or whether something is an act of theft or not an act of theft. But no one's arguing that stealing is good. No one's arguing uh, that lying is good in itself. So this Jewish confrontation 
of pagan mythology was very, very important because what's happening at the same time is that you have large numbers of Jews starting to live outside the land of Israel. They're living in places like Rome, probably as early as 500 years before Christ. And so the Greek world is growing in knowledge, growing in knowledge of the Hebrew God. And many people in the Greek world find the Hebrew God and the teachings of the Hebrew prophets far more reasonable, far more compelling than anything that was an offer in the pagan world. Well, you discuss on that point, you discuss the, the circulation of knowledge. I thought one of the fascinating facts in your book was that you say that because so many Greeks in the ancient world lived in Greek speaking communities and were losing the ability to speak and read Hebrew, they needed a Greek language version of the Old Testament. And the fact that, they, that there were multiple audiences that turned out for this translation, could you discuss who, was, who it was written for, who wrote it, and what, what, who the audiences were and what the ramifications of that were for the course of, civil, of Western civilization? So we're really talking about the the Hebrew scriptures, right? We're talking about uh, second, first century Judaism. And at this point in time, there are large numbers of Jews, maybe even a majority of Jews, who are not living in the land of Israel. Remember, a lot of people who were, there were plenty of people living in Babylon, many Jews living in Babylon, who did not return to the land of Israel. We also see Jewish populations emerging around the Mediterranean basin. And what happens, of course, is that they're very much immersed in the Greek and Roman world, and they start to lose, not surprisingly, their capacity to understand Hebrew or even read Hebrew. So what happens as a consequence of this is that There's a need to translate the Hebrew scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. What does this mean? This is very important because what it means is that people translating, and most of this was done in Egypt in the the second and first centuries before Christ. Most of these, these translations are going on. But what's important about this is that Suddenly, Hebrew thinkers, rabbis, for example, are having to wrestle with how do we express these Hebrew concepts in Greek language? How do we do this? How do we express the nature of God the creator, that God is reasonable, that God is loving, and this God acts with purpose? How do we do that using Greek terms? And so you find this is where the language of Logos comes into play, right? Because you find people, these translators, latching on to the idea of Logos, which was, as we've talked about, was very prevalent in the Greek world, had been developed by Greek philosophers. And they found that this captured a great deal of the Hebrew conception of the nature of God, because on one level it means word. We've talked about that. And uh, word, it means truth, but also means a being that's acting in history. So Logos becomes a very powerful way of conveying the Hebrew sense of who God is to Hellenized Jewish audiences, but also it means that Greeks and Romans 
can start picking up the Hebrew scriptures and reading them in Greek and eventually in Latin. So what this means is that the revelation contained in the Hebrew scriptures becomes very accessible to Greek and Latin-speaking audiences. So when Christianity comes along and uh, starts making its way in the world, the idea that Christ is the Logos, this idea finds a very quick reception, and a very positive reception among many Greeks, but also Hellenized Jews, Jews who had maintained their belief in the God of Israel, who went to synagogue, but who clearly um, uh, found the leap to Christianity very easy to make because of this emphasis that Christianity placed upon locals. This is why that many people have uh, concluded in more recent decades, it's very clear that most converts to Christianity in the first three centuries following uh, Christ, most of them were Hellenized Jews. That's very clear. We shouldn't be surprised by that because you see all these things happening historically, the translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, um, the emphasis of the Christian authors and writers placed upon philosophy, etc. You can see why the spread of Christianity happens so quickly and overtakes so much of the Roman Empire when you have that background in mind. Well, speaking of the rise of Christianity, and the, uh, we know that the idea that man is free was a very appealing concept in a place, in a time and place where many people weren't free. Um, you emphasize that man is free for something, and you call that something excellence. And I'd ask, like to ask you how that concept of excellence relates to, and this is a long question, sorry, one, right and wrong generally, how right and wrong are distinguished, what features and choices make, what features of choices and actions make them right or wrong, what it means to say something is right or wrong, and specific contested moral questions, such as those pertaining to marriage and sexual morality and our obligations towards human life. I realize these are broad questions, but your book asks some big questions, so I'd like to get your take on the concept of freedom and obligations. Right. Well, uh, freedom for many people today, and not just in our own time but in the past, is often associated as freedom from constraint. Right. So you can't tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. I get to do what I want. That's how many people conceptualize the nature of freedom. Freedom from coercion, freedom from constraint. It's, type of, it's a type of, I guess you'd call it negative freedom. Now, there is a truth to that, right? You're not really, there's a sense in which you're clearly not free when you can't make self-determining decisions about how you act, what you do, um, how you relate with other people, where you live, what your type of work is, etc. When that type of negative freedom is unreasonably coerced, you're clearly not free in a political sense, maybe an economic sense, etc. But the other thing you have to think about is something we've already discussed, which is reason. And you have to ask yourself, am I really free in another sense when I choose to do evil, when I choose to do that which is dehumanizing, when I choose to act in ways that disintegrate 
what makes me distinctly human? And of course, the Jewish and Christian answer to that is no, that this unique capacity for free choice, which is very difficult, by the way, to find expressed in depth and in thoroughness outside Jewish tradition, the smaller Orthodox Christian tradition, and certain schools of natural law. It's very hard to find robust conceptions of free choice. Instead, what you find is lots of different forms of determinism. Things just happen because they happen and you really aren't making free choices. Christianity and Judaism say, no, you are making free choices. You really are. You're making fundamental decisions about what you do, what you say, how you live your life, and those decisions just don't affect the world around you. They affect you yourself. So this freedom, this capacity for free choice leads us towards the ability to freely choose excellence. And excellence is when we choose what we know to be good and we reject what we know to be evil and we do so in a consistent way over time. A good way of expressing this idea of the excellence that I talk about and which Western society, Western culture has always talked about is through the idea of virtue is that there are certain moral habits that make us who we really are meant to be. And, and that would be Elizabeth Enscombe, which she, is that, well, she wrote about it, that a good sure, deal. absolutely, but also people, it goes back even further. It goes back to people like Aristotle, right? mm. Plato. They clearly had this conception of free choice as well. And, of course, the Hebrew prophets we've already talked about there. So... When, when the Deuteronomy says, choose, I said before you, life or death, blessing or curse, choose life and that you may live, what do we see there? We first see, first of all, this affirmation that you get to choose. God isn't going to make you do it. But he's also telling you that you can know what the good choice is, and when you make the good choice, you become who you are meant to be. And when you make the wrong choice, a morally evil choice, you are not who you are meant to be. You are, in some respects, not just damaging the world around yourself, you're damaging who you are as a person as well. So it's a type of, it's that you need the negative freedom. No question about that. You can't, you have to make the free choices under your own volition. The excellence comes, this higher freedom comes when you choose these moral goods that are at the center of what makes us distinctly human. Well, on the subject of free choice, I'd like to connect to kind of move into the, the the realm of economics in that respect, because you discuss Adam Smith in your book as both an economist and a moralist. And you've written extensively elsewhere, as you mentioned, about political economy and the relationship of finance and morality. And I'd like to ask you, and this is another long question, but I'd like to get your take on it. Something some libertarians share with many socialists, despite their profound differences, a tendency in thinking about political theory, social ethics, and economic dispose are two key players, the individual and the state. The question is how much power and freedom should be in the hands of each and how limited the, the power of freedom and the power and freedom of each should be. Socialists see a bigger role for government and less freedom for individuals. Libertarians want a small government and as much individual freedom as possible. Natural law theorists, theorists often say this is mistaken because radically incomplete picture. They contend it leaves out the institutions of civil society that mediate, thus the phrase mediating institutions between the individual and the collectivity and their important role. Do you agree with your fellow natural law theorists on this point? And can you explicate these 
rather uh, complicated matters for us. Mm-hmm. Well, they are complicated matters. What I will say is it is, is that natural law theory, first of all, affirms that we can we have reason. And as a consequence of reason, we can know the difference between moral good and moral evil, not just in broad general terms, but in specifics, in our specific actions and choices. Natural law theory also says that we can make the choices, that when we choose, we really are choosing moral good or moral evil. So it's not just we're drifting in this direction. It's not a sort of hard determinism of the type we find in Karl Marx, which is we're all just drifting along and the dialectics of history are driving us in particular directions. But we're also, um, it's not soft determinism, which is we think we're acting freely, but really we're not, which is a type of thought that you find in some parts of John Stuart Mill. Natural law theory says um, we, must, uh, we can know the truth, we can know moral good and moral evil. We have to have a capacity to make these choices. We have to have the freedom to make these choices. What's, what natural law brings into this discussion is an awareness that we are also social beings. So we are individual. No question that we're individual. Natural law also says that um, there is a role for government. It's very clear about that. But it also says that we are social beings. So we're not, one level we're clearly individual. I am who I am. You are who you are. There is no one who's going to be you. There's no one who's going to be me in the future. Clearly individual. But we're also to a certain extent, defined and understood by our social ties, who our family are, who our friends are, what country we live in, what occupation we have, who we work with, etc. And natural law says that, that in understanding society and when you're framing laws, you have to take all these different things into account. So, Natural law takes freedom and negative freedom very, very seriously because it says you can't flourish as as you're meant to without the freedom to do so. But it also says that the purpose of society is to help you in that direction, help you towards the good and away from evil. So preferably that should happen in families, that should happen in institutions of civil society, Religion obviously plays a role in shaping and forming people's thinking about these things. But natural law also says that law does have a role in shaping the moral culture. We just don't we don't have laws against, for example, killing just because we think it's inconvenient to have uh, people not being punished for killing people. We also have laws against killing because we think that killing is wrong and that people should know that killing is wrong so much so that we're willing to punish people. We're prepared to use the state to punish people who engage in acts of murder. So the other thing about natural law, as I would say, is that it affirms the individual, it affirms the social nature of the being of human beings, it affirms the creative nature of human beings, it affirms also that human beings are fallible, that we make mistakes, that we're not perfect, It affirms that also the community is important and it affirms that there is a role for the state in the governing of society. How that all cashes out in practice is going to vary from society to society. There's no one single right way of putting this all together. There are, in fact, many different right ways of showing how this all works. 
So to that extent, I think natural law makes it very clear that there are certain foundational principles at work, but that people also have the freedom to develop societies in which some of these different ways of reconciling and integrating these different dimensions of human existence can come together. Well, that's very helpful because I wanted to ask you about the sort of the, the, the tensions between views of society. And in terms of audience of your book, it seems to me that conservative Christians ought to read your book so they can be bolstering the view to, to, to I mean, to argue convincingly, thanks to your book, that there's nothing unscientific in holding fast to faith because you contend faith fosters reason. And progressives ought to, ought to read it so that they can see that their attempts to make everyone feel comfortable are actually rendering the field of ideas less inclusive. As you write, tolerance is no longer a matter of establishing the freedom to express one's views and argue about what is true. Instead, it becomes a tool for shutting down discussion by insisting that no one may claim that his philosophical or theological positions are true. And this happened to John Finnis himself at Oxford about a year ago, correct? Absolutely, because he holds to the classic natural law and Jewish and Christian view of the nature of sexuality. And uh, as a consequence of holding those views, he was described as intolerant, etc. And the point of tolerance, I often say, it's not to foster agreement. That's not the purpose of tolerance. The purpose of tolerance is to provide a context in which people can safely argue about the nature of truth and its implications for individuals, society, the economy, politics, culture, etc., in a way that they don't end up killing each other. So the purpose of tolerance is to help establish a state of affairs in which people can freely argue, even rigorously argue, about some of these questions without engaging in acts of violence or acts of coercion against one another. Purpose of tolerance is not tolerance. The purpose of tolerance is fostering conditions in which all people can peacefully and safely pursue and argue about the truth. Well, speaking of intellectuals, as we were discussing John Finnis, you discuss in your speech, uh, you discuss in your book, I beg your pardon, a speech that John Henry Newman gave in 1879, now known as the Bigliette. Speech. Could you tell us who Newman was and what what the particular points of his address and how press? It seems to me he was very prescient in discussing the decline of mainline Protestantism that it just becomes kind of a, a fuzzy, gauzy, feel good, psycho babbling institution. If I'm not reading too much into what Newman himself said. Well, John Henry Newman, of course, is maybe the great one of the greatest Christian theologians of the 19th century. He's most famous, I suppose, for converting to Catholicism um, at a time in England where Catholicism was seen as the religion of, of um, ignorance, of superstition, etc. And he, he, I mean, he wrote extensively about the rationality of Christian belief. He, he wrote um, many books about uh, ranging from the Church Fathers to answering particular philosophical objections to Christianity, etc. He's one of these great Victorian 19th century figures, and he was made a cardinal uh, in the latter part of his life by Pope Leo XIII. Now, when he, gave, when he was made a cardinal, it's, 
he, he gave an address in Rome. What was interesting about this was that the official Vatican newspaper reprinted this, the address the next day. And so did the London Times a couple of days later, because everyone understood that this was a very important speech. And what he basically said was, the one consistent feature of his religious journey from basically he was essentially started as a type of evangelical Anglican, then he moved into a form of Anglo-Catholicism, and then he eventually became a Roman Catholic. But he said the one consistent theme that dominates his religious journey and his religious writings was his opposition to what he called liberal religion. Liberal religion is, as he describes it, uh, all religions are the same, there's no substantive difference, they all are equally true and equally untrue, uh, that there really is no religious truth, that religious truth is a question of sentiment, a question of feeling, it's not a question of reason and rationality, uh, that the truths of religion are not that important, that religion is primarily there to provide us with types of comfort, it's not meant to challenge us, etc. It's really a critique of something we talked about before, which was sentimental religion, Jesus as our celestial teddy bear. And he says that in the end, it's deeply damaging because it doesn't take reason seriously. It's a view of religion. Liberal religion doesn't take reason seriously. It leads to a type of relativism in the way that we think about religious, philosophical, and moral questions. And it downplays the importance of truth. It basically marginalizes truth from religious inquiry and practice. And as we talked about before, what is religion? What is fundamentally religion about? Even an atheist can understand that religion is about search for truth about the ultimate origins of the universe and the meanings of that for my life and my existence. Liberal religion, as Newman understood it and portrayed it, basically excludes that fundamental dimension of religion from its understanding of God and the world. Well, as we approach the end of the interview, Sam, I'd like to ask if you have time. What uh, I, you, you use the term the central tradition, and circling back to John Finnis, could you discuss his four theses, which you identify as creation, freedom, justice, and faith, and the origins of? He gave them, I believe, in a speech in Argentina, and why? What? 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 Finnis is getting at basically in that. I'll repeat them: creation, freedom, justice, and faith. Well, in 2013, um, uh, John Finnis gave, I think, a very important speech at the, um, at the Catholic University of Argentina in Buenos Aires. And in that speech, what he did was to basically identify what he regards as the central tradition of the West. Central tradition of the West. What makes the West the West? What makes civilization, Western civilization, what it is. And he says there's basically four lodestones to that civilization. You just mentioned them, creation, reason, justice, and faith. By creation, what does he mean? He means that there, there is a creator who sets the world in motion and who is involved in the world. That's obviously a view that's at odds with paganism, 
It's also a view that's at odds with certain types of evolutionary theory, which holds that things just spontaneously emerge from nowhere and there's no ultimate order to things. The second thing he says is that uh, reason, capital R reason, reason that's not just capable of understanding and explicating the natural world, but reason which tells us why we should care about these things in the first place, reason which tells us that there is truth and we can know it. The third thing is, the third foundation is what he calls justice. And by justice, he means that there are right ways and wrong ways of acting, that we have concrete responsibilities to ourselves and to other people. The last one he says is faith. By faith, he doesn't mean uh, spontaneous belief. What he means is this sort of deeper knowledge, that there is this, this deeper knowledge that is in some ways inscribed upon our nature, which causes us to think about and direct our mind to ultimate things, God, uh, the meaning of the universe, how these things all fit together. And Finnis's point is that creation, reason, justice, and faith these are the foundations of what he calls the central tradition of the West. And when any of those start to become loosened or weakened, everything else starts to fall into disorder. So, for example, if you believe that there is no creator or no first cause, as Greeks and Roman thinkers would often say, if you believe that, then justice becomes whatever the most powerful, happen to think it is. Faith becomes a type of irrationality. And reason becomes the ways in which we work out how we triumph and crush those who get in our way of trying to realise whatever it is we happen to want. Alternatively, if you throw reason out the door, then justice becomes just a power game. It leads you to doubts about whether there is a creator and faith gets reduced to the realm of superstition. So he says that the challenge for the West this is to maintain these four pillars of the central tradition together. Keep these things together. You're being faithful to the central tradition, and you will also see this tradition continue to grow and flourish. If one or more of those things are excluded or marginalized or weakened, then you can expect the central tradition that's at the core of what the West is will start to collapse. Well, in that respect, your, your book ends on a relatively hopeful note in terms of the maintaining the Western tradition. Um, I'd like to ask, in terms of what, what, in that respect, what does Logos look like for the average person day of life, and how would such a person put it into words? Would, would a person say, I live a life of Logos? Would a T-shirt or bumper <laughs> sticker read, I choose Logos? Yes, well, yes. <laughs> no, no, that's a very that's a, I haven't that's one question I have not been asked before. Good, I'm glad. So that's uh, there've been others that you've asked which have also not been asked, but that is definitely one that I've not been asked. And I'm a bumper sticker kind of girl, you know. <laughs> well, what I would say is this: the person who takes logos seriously is a person who sees direction and purpose in the world. The person who takes logos seriously can have confidence 
that they can understand much of the world that's going on around them, and that they can shape much of the world that's going on around them. The person who lives by the ways of the Logos, the way of the Logos, is a person who believes that there is moral good and moral evil that's objective and it's not culturally relative and that it, in fact, transcends time and culture. A person who is a person of the Logos is one who tries to live the life of virtue because virtue is the way in which we realize this higher freedom, this excellence, to which the Logos himself directs us. The person who is a person of Logos believes that there is real justice, that people are owed certain things, and that justice is not whatever people happen to feel it is. So when you think about it that way, what you realize is that the person who is a follower of the way of the Logos is someone who takes all those things deadly seriously, who recognizes that human beings are not God themselves and therefore make mistakes because they're fallible, but also recognizes that despite that weakness, that human beings are capable of a type of greatness, type of greatness that we may not see in the immediate here and now, but will be made evident to us when we see the Logos himself face to face. Well, that is a very heartening thought. And with that, I know I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? (laughs) Well, uh, I think the next type of work that I'll be embarking upon in particular depth will be uh, trying to flesh out some of the issues in the book. So what does it look like? And I say this in the last chapter. I try to sketch out how the West might put together faith and reason. And maybe that's a thing to do. And having described how things are fallen apart and sketched a way forward, maybe the next thing is to sketch out in more detail what that way forward might look like. Well, I'm sure you'll, you'll have to fit that in amidst your many, many activities because you're a busy man. And I appreciate your taking the time to talk to us today. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Samuel Gregg, author of the book Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.